So I'm here today to tell you all the story of a crime I witnessed <laughs> recently. <laughs> we all tell us, witnessed. Yeah, you did all witness. My back was to the crime. I didn't see it. Beth didn't witness I, the crime. I got Melissa it out of the corner of my eye. Yeah, I saw part of it. <laughs> um, I think maybe the moral of this story, though, is that, like, Esther does not necessarily react well in a crisis because I witnessed the crime and just said, huh, that was weird. Was that maybe a crime? <laughs> Uh, Esther, so, can you set the scene of where we were? Can you just describe so, the event? Here's the scene. Uh, the three of us were having a meeting for this podcast. It was mm-hmm. our semi-annual full team podcast meeting. And uh, we love to meet at a local wine shop. Because Shout out to Just Wine. It's delicious and they're so kind. And it's a very happy place for us. Mm-hmm. But we were sitting by the door slash window and we're just chatting and all of a sudden I see this man come in through the door and just like grab a bottle of wine off the shelf and then just like leave and I was like huh Huh? that's so funny like he must have paid for that some other time (laughs) not right now (laughs) and then I like sit there further and I look over at the at the the lady working and she just looks at me and she's like yeah that just happened and I was like oh no maybe I should have done something but also mm. what could I have done what could have you done chase him down <laughs> can you imagine if you just like can you ran after the thief and like tackled him there was a patron that did get up and like looked out the door to see if he could still see him. Um, I thought mm. the my favorite comment wow. from the employee though was, "He's not even gonna like that bottle of wine." <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite. Like he's not yeah. even gonna appreciate that one. Esther, I just want to affirm the good job that you did. You did not great a- with what you had, and I'm not it a was crime stopper. <laughs> We found something that is maybe not your gift set is a crime stopper. You might not be a crime stopper, but that's okay. In my mind, I see myself like pulling a Superman where I like stand up and like underneath my clothing is my, is the S of my Superman costume. And I run after him and I like grab that bottle of wine and I say not today sir <laughs> not on my watch <laughs> and then just rewards me by giving me free wine for life oh my gosh can you imagine see yeah. don't you wish amazing. I was a crime stopper now no I do I mean I but as it stands you could have just been the Lois Lane sitting there just taking notes about what you witnessed <laughs> That's what I am. And now I'm reporting on it (laughs) for cable channel three news. Hey guys, this is Melissa. Welcome to the people who see podcast. We ask questions often avoided and listen to stories often unheard. We believe great stories and great questions allow us to see our faith differently. Thanks for joining the conversation. 
Let's dive in. Hello, our people who see podcast listeners. Welcome back. Um, we have such a awesome conversation for you guys today um, with Crispin Mayfield. Uh, he is an author and a licensed professional counselor. I learned about him from his wife, um, who I knew about first, but which is also amazing. Like they're both, um, incredible human beings. So, um, but we are honored to have Crispin with us today. Um, but we also have a team here and it's not just me and little B who's hanging out in the background, (laughs) but we also have Esther. Yo. (laughs) Solid. (laughs) That's and the how other I respond to people at work when they call my name. They're like, Esther, and I'm just like, yo, what do you need? Okay, I'm done. You're, You're very like a business-like. 29-year-old frat college boy. <laughs> the Wait, a college boy was 29? Okay. He's, he's on the decade plan. <laughs> You're kind of going with the, the animal, what is it, animal house theme? Something like that. I'm old. Ah. <sighs> I don't know what's wrong with me, guys. Uh, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, and the other <laughs> third of our brain trust is here. Beth. <laughs> Hello. Brain trust is here. Beth brain trust brought <laughs> This is going <laughs> off the rails. It's going off the rails. <laughs> Melissa, take us back on. Choo choo, back on those rails. All right. So, bringing us back to the topic of our interview today, like I said, we have Crispin Mayfield with us. I was sad I missed this interview, but uh, Beth and Esther definitely held it down. So, a little bit about Crispin. He is a licensed uh, professional counselor who has a background in full time ministry, but is now in full time. private practice in Oregon where he lives with his wife DL and their two children. Uh, He is trained in attachment-based emotionally focused therapy and he has served for over 10 years in church trauma recovery programs. In his writing, podcasting, and speaking, Crispin explores the integration of faith and psychology and is a writing, his writing has appeared in a variety of publications including Christianity, Christianity Today, Relevant, Eletia, Boundless, and Fathom. So the three of us together make an excellent podcast team. Um, separately, we're working on it. But I hope you all enjoy the our conversation today with Crispin Mayfield. We love to just kind of start these things off by... I, my new catchphrase that I've chosen is lobbing you up a softball um, <laughs> and inviting you to just tell us your story. Um, how did you how did you find this work that you currently find yourself doing and that we're going to ask you questions about for an hour? Yeah, I, I started in pastoral ministry was my focus, like my first couple of years at college. Um, so I, I knew that I wanted to go in 
to, well, I wanted to go into ministry at that point. I knew that I was going to be in like a helping profession. And then I had my first, like, here's how you preach a sermon uh, class. And I was like, oh, this isn't for me. (laughs) Not that I like hate public speaking, but um, I just kind of recognized that I wanted to have lots of like one-on-one conversations with people, which like looking back on it, I'm like, I know pastors do that all the time. And the particular program I was in was like really focused. It was like, you know, early 2000s. And it was just all about like church growth and programs. And like, how do you like get people to come to your church? How, you know, and I was like, none of this feels personal. And so, um, and so, yes, going into psychology, uh, a minor in psychology major in Bible and theology, and then going on to get my master's in counseling. And that just really ended up being a really good fit. I just love being able to sit down with people and have important healing conversations. Um, and so that really fit with me. And, um, <clears throat> and throughout the, even like starting out, I was aware as a teenager of some of the people that were getting missed in church um, and even had friends that had gone through trauma and just had this sense of like, they're going to youth group, they're going to church, but this, like this church thing, isn't really speaking to like what they need. It's not actually a healing thing. And so that was one of the reasons that I wanted to go into ministry was to have church be a place that really knew more about trauma and, um, and knew how to hold people in that. And, um, but then I just jumped ship and (laughs) went into therapy myself, but it really has been, um, on my heart for a long time. And actually right after I graduated, I went into a, um, a Christian nonprofit for three years, a, a mission organization, essentially, um, and was doing um, some sort of grassroots ministry stuff uh, in Minneapolis. And that still continues to be um, what I really like to focus on is how can the church and how can um, Christianity be good news to those that are suffering most. Yeah, that's how that's how that's I found crazy. myself here, that's and cool. and stumbled a, a, upon attachment along the way is just like a really helpful framework, um, because what we find there is like we have this just core drive to connect, and it's in connection that we find the healing, and so looking at that from this framework of um, we'll do whatever we can to get connection, and sometimes that looks really dysfunctional. Um, but if we can understand, like, these are all ways that we're trying to get connection and community and belonging, that's a really good starting place. And I think that also fits really well with the story of scripture, because God obviously is a God in relationship and has created us for relationship. And so, um, it just has really, the psychology of it has really spoken to me deeply, um, as I also look at scripture. As I was reading your book, I was just like, can Crispin be my counselor? Pro- no, you can't because we live in different states. And there's, But I have had such negative counseling experiences at times that reading how you approach like clients, is that what they're mm-hmm. called? Yeah. 
<laughs> you your, could say clients are patients. Patients. And ha- like the ways that you often engage with question, um, so connected with me in such a powerful, powerful way. And so I have to find a Crispin in South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will say that so much of that comes from the training that I've done in the emotionally focused therapy community. Um, And so I just want to give a shout out to that community um, of really like leading with empathy and and wanting to understand um, as a way of connecting and creating healing relationships. So you mentioned just a little bit... um about your work with attachment science attachment science that's the Mm -hmm. phrase um could you for our listeners just kind of do a super bird's eye view of what attachment science is and then how you see that as um playing into our relationship with god Mm -hmm. yeah so attachment again is this idea of like we have this drive to connect and uh, we'll do whatever we can to get that connection. And you can see that most clearly with kids. Um, kids want to be near their parents. If you're a parent, you know that on an experiential level. And um, so that was where it started. And, and the initial idea of attachment um, came out of a time when in the 1940s when um, kids were separated all the time from their parents and it was sort of understood that kids they just need food and shelter and someone to change their dirty diaper and that's all they need Um, and so John Bowlby who's the founder of attachment theory was looking at all these children that had been displaced because of World War II Um, And so all these kids that had been separated from their parents, maybe their parents stayed in a city, but because of uh, bombings there, all the kids were just taken to like nurseries, um, you know, in the countryside, something like that. And um, he was noticing that kids need more than just their physical needs taken care of. They need uh, at least one person in their life that they feel connected to, that they, uh, you know, creates like this grounded place for them and Mm -hmm. so that was really where it started but what we found over the course of um, a lot of research is that's not only true for kids that's true for adults as well and so Mm -hmm. this drive to connect with someone else who's important to us is stronger than um, can be stronger than our need for food or our need for uh, protection or shelter Um, And so understanding that this is a deep drive that God has given us, I think this is one of the ways that we reflect God is this drive for connection. And so um, then we look at all that research and then there's also research about how we have this same drive to connect with God. And we will do whatever we can to keep that connection and the ways that our brain lights up when it comes. Like, for example, when I have a fight with my partner um, and she and I are like, it feels like this distance between us. We both will go into like attachment system. Like, how do we fix this? This doesn't feel good. This feels bad. Right. Um, we'll, we'll go into like our pattern of trying to fix it. Um, 
And there's that part of my brain that lights up that says, like, I need connection with this person I care about so much and can even go into kind of fight or flight mode, depending on the level of security in the relationship. And so we go into that. And what we found is that our brain lights up in the same way when it comes to connection with God. And so we have that same experience of like, I I need closeness with God and I'm going to do what I can to get there. And so really the, the book that I wrote is looking at what are the ways that we try to get that connection. And instead of starting with the assumption of that some people have started with, which is, um, you know, we need to be told that we should get close to God or, um, you know, people generally don't want to be close to God, kind of starting with this assumption that, um, at least for those of us who are believers to say, yeah, we have a drive to um, to get close to God. That makes sense. Like that fits with what Paul talks about. Like we we have, um, you know, we have a love for God and we want this closeness. So then the question is, how do we try to get that closeness? And that looks really different for different people. But um, sometimes it's like that, you know, intimate worship service. Sometimes it's daily quiet time. Sometimes it's like mowing the church lawn. Um, it can look different for different people. Um And that's where I get into these different attachment styles and looking at the way that we approach other relationships in our life um, tends to be the same way that we approach God. And so if we tend to be that person that's like maybe uncomfortable with emotions, but I will help you in whatever way I can, um, then we'll, you know, do that same thing with God where it's like, I want to, you know, do acts of service, but I'm a little bit uncomfortable talking about what's going on deeper Um, if you're that person that is like me, that's really clingy in relationships, um, then you tend to take, bring that clinginess to God to, you know, like I need to just always be checking or, you know, are we okay? Have I done the right thing? So I need to like repent of something. Um, and so for me, it just started to click that the ways that we approach our human relationships and those dynamics, um, tell us a lot about the way that we approach God. Mm -hmm. Crispin, can you name really quick the attachment styles in your yes, book? Because you just you. did. And then I was yeah. like, shame. Shame is one of them. I know. Can you? Uh, right. yeah. <laughs> because I love how in your book, it's this like dance of like how our attachment styles with our parents and people we love is how we often can connect. Like what we receive can also be how we connect with God. And it was, it was like kind of like blew my mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. tell us name those attachment styles for us. Yes, thank you. Um I so the first one is anxious and that um well, before we jump in, talking about how this plays out with parents. Um I want to give the parents that are listening a break. Um you don't have to get this perfect and really um you have to get it right 50% of the time during the times when your kid needs you. So, uh, you know, yeah, easy enough. Um, so that doesn't mean that you have to always be available to your kid. Um, that actually means that, um, there are those times where your kid needs you, um, that reaches out to say like, Hey, I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling worried. I need some reassurance. And, um, and Getting it right 50% of the time is going to help with that secure attachment. 
of course, we can't always be there for our kid in, in every moment. Um, the other thing, too, is the biggest thing that creates this sense of security is delight. And so when you have when when you as a kid have a sense like my parent really likes me, that creates a lot of security. So um, it doesn't, you know, it's not really about how, what's the right way to discipline or like, you know, um, do I put my kid in childcare or do I keep them at home? All of those things. It really is about um, what's the dynamic like between us and does my kid, even if I, you know, set boundaries with them sometimes and they have a huge meltdown, do they still have a sense that I like them? Um, and so there's a lot there, but I just like to lay that as a groundwork, um, because parents start listening and they're like, oh no, am I screwing up my kid? Um, (laughs) so the first one is anxious. And this is where if you have a parent that, um, is there some of the time, but not consistently there, what you kind of learn is I have to keep the connection with my parent. I can't rely on them to uh, always be focused on me when I need them. And so I have to stick around them. I can't go to the other side of the playground because what if I start crying and they don't see? Um, And so I'm just going to sit on the park bench right next to my mom because at least that way I can count on that guaranteed connection. And then you grow up to be an adult and um, you might be kind of clingy with this anxious attachment style where it's like, um, you know, I texted you two minutes ago and you haven't texted back yet. What's wrong? And from the outside, you're like, oh, that that seems so needy. But from the inside, what it is, is like, oh, I can't trust people to stick around. And so if there's a problem in the relationship, I need to know now so that I can fix it. It's my responsibility to make sure the connection's okay. And so I need to always be checking. I need to always be making sure that we're okay. And um, and if it seems like something's not okay, I need to address it right away. Um, so if you haven't texted me back after two minutes, my brain is going to, oh no, like, are they just, are they gone? Are they leaving? It's up to me to keep them close. So I have to do this extra work. Um, and then if we looked, shifted that to God, um, then, you know, it's that similar thing of it's, it's up to me to keep God close. This relationship falls fully on my shoulders And um, I need to make sure I'm doing the right things. I need to make sure that I've, you know, confessed sin. I need to make sure that um, there isn't anything getting in between my relationship with God. And while it's good to reflect on, like, how, how is my faith going during certain times, if we're living in that place of, like, I need to make sure that I'm doing this right so God doesn't leave, Um, we never actually get to rest. And that actually is one of the both Old Testament and New Testament to like one of the huge themes, like God brings Israel out of Egypt and says, I'm instituting a Sabbath that was distinct um, amongst the nations of that time. God is saying like, here is something unique about my people is that they will rest. And then Jesus comes along and says similar things. Um, And so if we find ourselves in a place where it's like, no, I need to just like cling on 
to God, you know, try my hardest, white knuckle it all the time. Like we need to ask, why is this here? Um, you know, it might be our attachment style. It might be some of the things that we've been told in the church or the ways that we've interpreted things in the church. Um, like I said, it could be, you could bring this attachment style in with you uh, from your own family of origin. But um, Charles Spurgeon, who is a famous preacher um, in the uh, 19th century, I believe, um, said, has like, I, I quote him in my book where he says something about like the Christian life is like climbing up a mountain of ice and like you have to keep moving forward and like every, you know, step is like you with your chisel. Um, and that is not a picture of a restful spirituality. You really did blow my mind when I was reading and seeing all of these kind of examples of people that at least in my world have kind of been like idolized mm -hmm. and to be able to kind of get a microscope and look and be like, maybe, maybe that's not healthy after all, you know, like, <laughs> and so it, you have several examples of people like that in this book that I was like, I think I need to to relook at some things. <laughs> yeah, I think what's like really the reason I did that, I wasn't you know, people have said like I'm attacking those theologians. I it was just so important to me to say like here are the messages we've been given because we get mixed messages. We are told like you go to a church Sunday uh church service on Sunday and your pastor might say like you can rest with God. God loves you. God is is going to take care of you. Like, this is the most, like, wonderful love you've experienced. Like, we have this heavenly father that's going to take care of you. You don't need to worry. Like, you don't need to be anxious. And so it's really important to me to, like, kind of hunt down, like, but we still get these other messages <laughs> that are like, no, you sort of should be anxious. You should be worried about your faith. Um, and so it was important to like find those examples just so that people could be like, oh yeah, I, I'm not like making this up. I have been given these two different messages and it's hard to know what to do with those conflicting messages. So that was anxious, anxious. correct? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What are, what are the other two? Yeah. So the second one is shut down and this is, um, really, uh, that person that's like, I don't really have emotions. I don't need emotions. I'm more logical. Um, I don't need others. I, um, I'm fine on my own. And, um, and that's like on a spectrum, right? So that's maybe someone at the far end of the spectrum, but you're, you might be wondering how is this a, a strategy for connecting? Like if someone's like, I don't need other people, you know, I'm fine on my own. It's kind of confusing. But if you think about, say, a four-year-old who's on the playground, this is an example I use in the book, um, but I think it just illustrates it so well. You know, you, this four-year-old goes, they're playing on the playground, they scrape their knee, and then they look back at mom and they're like, okay, I could go get a hug, but I know that if I'm crying, mom is going to be annoyed at me. She's going to be like, you know, why, why, you know, you should have been more careful. And um, every parent has that moment, so <laughs> I want to give some grace there. But if this happens over and over and over again, 
what that kid is going to learn is if I want to stay in mom's good graces, I need to just be okay on my own. I just need to take care of it myself. And the best way to do that is to just shut down those emotions, suppress them, ignore them, just distract yourself. Um, and actually, uh, the insula, which is a part of your brain, shrinks, which means that those <laughs> I love that horrified face you look. Yeah. This is actually uh something that Kurt Thompson talks about in his book, Anatomy of the Soul. Talks about how the insula mm-hmm, such a good book. Um he talks about how the insula shrinks because um, it, it makes sense. Like we have these emotions that come up in our body and our brain's like, nope, like this part of my brain <laughs> that takes in that information is going to shrink. So I don't get so much of that information. So when I feel worried or when I feel sad, I'm not, my brain isn't going to pick up on that information as much. It's not going to like interpret it as an emotion. It'll be there in my body, but it's not going to be like, interpreted in my brain which our brains are very malleable and that can be healed but um but it makes sense then is like then you grow up and you're like oh yeah like my emotions only drive other people away and so if you uh you know your wife is like i really want to know what you're feeling like you're your brain hears that and is like, okay, I'm hearing that on like a verbal level, but I learned really early on that if I shared what was actually going on inside of me with other people, it will drive them away. So my best strategy to keep other people close is to just be okay. And so um, then, you know, you can imagine how that plays out in adult relationships and then when it comes to God, it's that same thing. Um, and we've give, been given these messages in the church that um, if you're sad, if you're worried, it's because you don't have enough faith, you don't believe God's truth, right? And so it's that same thing of like, all right, well, I need to just like squish those emotions down so that I can be close to God. And then we also, it's kind of like, uh, we would call it like bi-directional, um, because it then goes the other way where we use our faith to squash down our emotions, right? To say like, well, I know God, you know, yeah, people are getting laid off at my job, but God's in control, which is different than people are being laid off at my job and I feel anxious about that. I feel worried about it. I'm going to share that worry with my friends and partner and spouse or whoever and God and then get comfort in the idea that God is in control. Like the first one is like, I don't need to worry. Like I'm not worried because of this thing. And we just use it to like shut down the emotion. The second is like, yeah, God is in control. And so, um, so we can find comfort in that when we bring our emotions to God, who obviously wants to meet us there. If we've learned anything from the Psalms. So <laughs> It's so interesting because I feel like what I'm hearing in both of these, and we'll probably hear in the third one, I'm just guessing, mm-hmm. is like, I feel like in Christianity, we've somehow fundamentally misunderstood what it means to be human a little bit. Like, because these attachment things are, I just keep hearing, like, these are just your needs. Like, these mm-hmm. are needs that you have as a human. And we are finding these different ways to get those needs met. 
but most of them, well, spoiler alert, there's going to be shame, but most of them, <laughs> like, we're just, we're not getting those needs met. And so we're, we're twisting ourselves around mm-hmm. to get them met. Do you think, where do you think that misunderstanding comes from of like what it needs to be a human with needs? So one thing that came up in my book as I was reading about different theologians is that um, many of these theologians had their own story, uh, their own personal story um, and their own upbringing. And um, you can see how that impacted their theology. And these are um, people that have really been kind of front runners in um like white evangelicalism um, in, you know, a lot of the like non-denominational churches. And it could be, you know, um, someone more recent, like I talked about John Piper, but, you know, Spurgeon um, is centuries old, um, but still, you know, like has such a big influence on the church. And so you have people engaging with scripture and, um, saying it sort of like, well, this is just what the Bible says and not acknowledging that my own personal story is playing into this. And, um, and actually, um, I think one of the biggest, um, examples of this is Billy Graham who, you know, most people like across, across like so many theological traditions, people would be like, yeah, Billy Graham, he has a really simple message. Um, and it, you know, I would, usually agree with him theologically. Um, but early on in his uh, ministry, he preached this sermon um, and he said, you know, the gospel's like this. There's a father and a son in this cabin and the father says, go get wood from the fire or get go get wood for the fire. And the son is like wrapped up in a novel, doesn't notice. Then the dad like snaps at him and is like, go get the wood. <laughs> And then uh, the son's like, I don't, you know, basically like, I don't want you yelling at me, slams the door, leaves, you know, comes back two weeks later um, and says, can I please come in? It's cold out here. And uh, Billy Graham says the father's face softens for a moment and says, you can come in as soon as you go get that wood that I asked you to get in the first place. And what strikes me about this is like, this is very, very much lines up with Billy Graham's experience of his own father, but is very different than the story of the prodigal son. And to have someone who, again, like I, you know, I think just like really wanted to just like read the Bible and, and preach what he understood um, for someone to miss that, like to have that blind spot, I think is just a good picture of like, yeah, this is what happens when fallible humans read the word of God and then preach it. And if you have a certain group of people, um, that are mostly doing interpretation, um, then it's gonna get lopsided in a way. And so, um, I think that's why we've ended up here is, um, you have this mix of um, of a lot of white men doing theology 
Um, and just culturally, there's going to be more of an avoidance of feelings. And so it makes sense that we end up with this theology that says, oh, yeah, like being close to God means uh, giving, you know, suppressing your feelings and believing the truth. And we haven't even gotten to shame yet. <laughs> I know. I <laughs> Shame. I, it, it's going to sound really weird, but I can't wait to get to shame. But <laughs> yeah. I, I just – it's so – fascinating to me because I feel like what I keep hearing in these people that you're talking about is like we're trying to make the love of God smaller and more like something we have experienced because I think maybe and this will connect to the sort of belovedness in the shame-based one I think but we're, I don't think we're used to experiencing a love that like is entirely unshakable and unearned and so I feel like that's that's also why these people are trying to like shrink it down and contract it into these things that we're familiar with because most of the time that's all we've truly experienced, right? Yeah, definitely. And I I think that I think part of what happens is there is this call for discipleship and there is like formation that happens and what we end up doing is like combining those two things uh, in a way that I think isn't very helpful. So I think about like with with hu- uh, with human relationships, like how many times do you get held and rocked and fed and um, cuddled before any you get any like, all right, now we're going to like work on your behavior to like, you know, do this or that. You know, you just think about like that picture of what it's like to be a baby and that's what we need in the faith. And so, um, you know, when we start with this idea of like, yeah, like God just loves you unconditionally and we'll get to the behavior part later. But what often happens is we mix those things up, um, at the same time and kind of mix up those stages, which then, um, you know, really, you know, one of the things too is that we know that those with that secure attachment of knowing I'm loved no matter what I do, um, they are more likely to be empathic. They're more likely to make ethical decisions. Um, there's actually like studies about like people with secure attachment as business owners are more ethical business owners. Um, we uh, are able to. <laughs> We're able to, like, with that security, we're able to use the front of our brain, like, the the wiser part of our brain. And so it just makes so much sense. And and I think, um, like, Henry Nouwen is such a great example of this, of talking about how our spiritual formation is knowing how beloved we are. And unfortunately, what often happens in the church is people say, like, well, we need balance. Like, you need to know that you're loved, but you also need a kick in the pants. And recognizing actually, like, the more we understand how beloved we are, that actually gives us a really wonderful framework for, like, living into the kingdom of God and those things that Jesus calls us to. Um, So, yeah, I think... (laughs) I think it is, it's out of this good intention to like, be like, all right, well, we got to talk about love, but we also got to talk about this, but, um, we just need to understand that there's, um, 
we got to really be grounded in love first. And as long as that's sort of like a question, like we can't move on to the next stage. And that next stage isn't like, I'm going to give you a kick in the pants. The next stage is like, (laughs) all right, like us together, like what are we going to do? Like now that we have this solid relationship, what are we going to do together in the world? It's like, it's like we want to, we want to assure people of their belovedness, but we're like just a little bit afraid to let go of that last bit of control where it's like, but if I don't hold back this tiny piece where you're kind of a piece of garbage, like I can't control your behavior anymore. And if I just say you're the beloved of God and let you go, all my, all my power is completely gone. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But I will stop interrupting you well, for that, one minute. Well, that let leads into shame, right? <laughs> so It's the segue. Yeah. Segue to shame. So the, the third the the third strategy is uh attachment style is, is shame filled. And if you're listening to this and you're like, but I resonate with all of these, that's fine. Um so do I. And uh and I think What's really good to look at to understand about this is these are different strategies. Um, they don't have to be a category for who you are as a person. It's like this is the thing that I do to get connection. And in our attachment style tends to be like, which one of these do I reach for most? Um, but you can use all of them. But the third attachment strategy um, and style is shame filled. And that's this idea so if we look about what this looks like in human relationships it is first of all really sad uh because this has to do with trauma abuse neglect the when kids have an experience of being hurt by their parent or neglected by their parent they have these two conflicting drives so one drive is i want to get close to you the other drive is I want to run away from you because you're going to hurt me in some way. You know, it could be physical, but it could be like the um, a, a verbally abusive parent that, you know, kid gets close and they're like, look at what's wrong with you, you know, and list these things out. And the kid is like, I want to be close to mom because I have this drive for connection. And also I have this protective drive that says run away. And now I'm stuck. Do I do I go close and risk harm and like rejection and judgment? Or do I stay far away and feel lonely and disconnected? And what this shows, how this shows up in um, adult relationships is kind of what I described where it's like, I want to be close, but I'm afraid of getting close, which is a little bit different than the, the, shutdown person the shutdown person tends to be like i'm fine on my own like i don't need other people this is someone that's like i do want to be around other people but i'm afraid that if they really see me for who i am they're gonna run away so when you bring this into relationship with god there this is kind of trying to your attachment system is trying to make sense of these messages you've gotten about god which is god loves you god wants you close God is disgusted with sin and um, and doesn't want to be near you. And, um, and so we end up in this place where it's like, I want this connection and closeness with God. But then when I feel close, 
um, I feel bad about myself and I feel like there's something wrong with me and there's something disgusting about me. And that's a really uncomfortable feeling. Um, and that actually isn't, I don't think that this is what God wants um, for us when we're close. And so I feel like I need to like give a little argument for that. Cause some people will say like, no, that is part of being a Christian is like, you have to understand how bad you are. But, um, but I don't think that at least staying there is really like where God wants us to be. I think God wants us to feel loved. Um, it's when we can see our own belovedness that we can see the belovedness in others. Um, and so, um, but this, this shame filled attachment style is like, yeah, I'm afraid to get close to you. And because you're so disgusted with me, maybe if I beat myself up, if I like criticize myself all the time, then you'll want to get close to me because I'm agreeing with you that I am disgusting and maybe that will kind of like get me in your good favor. And so, um, but what we know is that that can often lead to self-hatred. Um, and it, it, uh, Paul Tillich, a theologian, um, has talked about how this is one strategy we use when, when we realize there's nothing we can do to earn God's love and God's grace that we're like, well, since I can't bring anything positive, maybe I can just like beat myself up a lot and say like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I don't deserve this. I'm, I'm a worm. I'm terrible as a way of like bringing something to God. And, and he's like, but God doesn't need that. Like, and I would agree. Um, and I think about my own kids, like, I don't, I don't need them to, in order to appreciate the way that I love and care for them, I don't need them to say, like, I don't deserve this. I'm terrible. Um, <laughs> I just delight in them. And I think that's what often we've missed in the church, um, is knowing that God really likes us and delights in us. And that, again, is that core to secure attachment. I love that. I actually, I like, I love the tools that this book gives for like self-reflection and um, I haven't even told my pal Esther this, but in your book, this book was a really like a catalyst to me exploring some stuff within myself of the way that I saw God. And I had this really powerful moment with God where I feel like the way that I perceive God shifted kind of when I began to bring my kind of ideas of who I thought God was. So even like subconsciously, like I would obviously not say these things out loud, but it was reflected in what I thought and kind of at the core of what I believed. And I just want to say, thanks for writing this book. And I have students at a seminary that I work at and I'm, I made all of them get it. <laughs> I mean, I can't force them, but I said, yeah. you, <laughs> they have their own, they're powerful people, but yeah. So that's just my exhortation. You you don't need probably don't need it, but there it is. <laughs> that is like the probably the best feedback that I could get because that was my hope is like I for me like I've obviously this is all from my own like work and and stuff and maybe that's not obvious, but most people that write a book it's, you know, to, to get through that whole process, it has to be more than just like, oh, this seems like a good idea. Like for me, this is kind of talks about my own process of trying to have a more 
healing picture of God. Um, and, um, but yeah, what I recognize for me is like, yeah, I have all this theological knowledge, but I always feel like God is disappointed in me. God is, you know, just keeping me around, um, so that I'll be perfect one day, but doesn't like me now. And, carrying that around was not helping me. It wasn't helping my relationships. It wasn't helping the people that I was serving. Um, and look going on the, on a search for, um, a bet like better news. And I think like one of the most important parts of the book for me was the prodigal son story has been so important to me. And that's one story out of all of scripture, but, um, it really is a beautiful picture of a God who's just like, I'm just so glad you're here and I don't really care about much else. Like, I don't care. It doesn't matter how you treated me before. I just want to celebrate that you're here with me. Something um, that I've heard you say and that you obviously wrote about in the book quite a bit too was sort of this idea of like feeling and experiencing the love of God. Um, and to what Beth said, one of my favorite things was that this book was incredibly practical. Like it gave you really practical tools and practices to sort of move with the head into the heart and like be able to actually experience the love of God. Um, so could you talk about like for each of the attachment styles like what would be a practice that people could maybe start walking into that could help them to experience that yeah definitely um I love that question because I do like it to be practical that's the therapist in me that's like all right so what does this mean for this week <laughs> yes um and so thinking about that that anxious attachment style if you're that person that's like it's up to me to keep closeness with God um, I know for me growing up, my quiet time was always had a goal to it. It was always like, I need to understand something. I need to hear from God. I need to know like, what is, what am I supposed to be doing this week? Uh, there's a decision that I need to make. And so if you, if that's you, <laughs> it can be really helpful to, if I would say like broadly on do some looking into contemplative prayer, um, which can be a lot of different practices, but just to make it really baseline um, or really basic, something you could do this week is like set a timer on your phone for five minutes and sit there and breathe. And, um, and I want to say like, remind yourself of the love of God, but that can also be a task, right? So don't make it a task. <laughs> Just recognize like what whatever I feel, whatever thoughts are going on in my head here, I can rest, I can stop, I can take a breath and I can remind myself that God loves me. And um, and it's not a, not a matter of like, okay, well, I need to leave this time believing this thing. It's just like I'm committing this five minutes of rest to myself and to God. And I think that's a really different way of approaching it and a more healing way of approaching it because um, God's with you no matter what. And so it's really up to us to just make time to recognize it. But that's really different than making time to try to keep God close. So that would be that 
anxious attachment style. Um, with the shutdown, um, a lot of times when it comes to emotions, um, people will not know how to do that. Um, if it's like, yeah, I, you know, people talk about sit with your emotions and I have no idea what that means. And so, um, the little step there might be to throughout your day, pause, maybe just once a day, pause and notice what am I feeling right now? And it might be like, my shoulders are sore. It might be my stomach is hungry. Um, it could be a very physical feeling, but that is the first step to getting more in tune with those emotions. The next step might be finding someone safe in your life. And maybe you did pause and notice like, oh, I, I feel kind of sad. Um, or maybe it's more general, like I feel bad. And sharing that with someone in your life and saying, I don't know why I'm feeling this. Like I have not figured this out. I'm not good with emotions. But I noticed that I'm feeling bad today and I wanted to share that with you. Um, so those would be like teeny tiny steps. Um, and, and if that is a safe, trusted person, letting them know, like, you're not very good at it, um, I think can be really helpful so that they, hopefully that cues in them to be like, oh, this is vulnerable. Even if, even if it doesn't seem very vulnerable, cause it's so general, um, it is a vulnerable thing. So, and then the third with the shame filled, my, this is like my favorite thing. Um, cause it's been really helpful for me feeling like God doesn't, uh, like me. That was just the feeling of a lot of my life. Um, I always felt like God is like, when I get to heaven, I'll be perfect Crispin. And that's why God is keeping me around. Cause God wants perfect Crispin. God doesn't want like current day Crispin. Um, but I have this friend, Mark, um, who is just like the most delightful, guy he's um the generation old couple generations older than me um and he just i just sense that delight from him and for me it was like okay if mark likes me this much like maybe i can use that as a framework for how god feels about me um and so think about that person or animal in your life um i think that is a great like what if god felt that you know, a 10th of the way that your dog feels about you. <laughs> like, you know, I think that's Change like everything. Uh -huh, right. Everything. <laughs> exactly. And I, our, our, our attachment systems, our brains, that part of our brain needs concrete experiences. And so looking for those concrete experiences to look for the people that really delight in you. So there's some practical things to take forward. There's a lot more in the book. Um, but yeah, I was like to, to figure out, okay, like here's all the information, but how do we move forward? Crispin, you are a delight. Speaking of delights, you are a delight. We are so happy you're here. And I cannot wait for everyone to hear every single word that you said. Um, but as we wrap up, we love to ask this question. Um, what anchors you to Christianity? I love this story of a <laughs> love this story. Like it sounds like I don't think it's a myth, but when I look at um, when I look at the story of scripture, I see a, a parent who really delights in 
in their children. Um, and you know, that's my way of reading scripture. Like you can, there, there is a lot going on in scripture. (laughs) And so, you know, you can read it a lot of different ways, but, um, what was so neat for me was to look at, um, this attachment research and, and not that I'm coming at it from psychology, but it just resonated so deeply with like my experience and what I know healthy relationships look like and knowing that God is just continually showing up for us and wanting us, wanting what's best for us. And some of that is like, as a parent, I'm just like, okay, like if God is saying, I am your parent, um, if Jesus says, you know, God is our father, like if that is how God wants to present themselves, then I'm going to say like, okay, so my experience as a parent, like I know what it's like to delight in my kid. Um, I'm not doing things or setting rules because I need to be happy. I'm doing things because of what's good for them. Um, it's been so life-giving to go back and understand like Jewish law and, and to understand like even the Israel is saying, yeah, God is giving this to us for our good. This isn't to keep God happy. This is because it's what's good for us. And as a parent, I'm like, oh yeah, I totally resonate with that. Um, and I think the other thing is like, as a therapist, like I just see so much trauma and so much brokenness in the world. So many broken relationships, um, I do some trauma. I do a lot of couples therapy, which is like, you know, some of the hardest relationships where people are really close and intimate and, um, and then there's something that's not going right in that relationship. And to know that God is healing all things, like it talks about in Colossians 1, reconciling all things, um, is just so, like, again, resonates with me. And just something that I have faith and hope that that God is, is healing all things and that I get to be a part of that um, is really exciting, too. All right. That was amazing. Um, so much uh, good in that conversation. Um, lots to process and think about. But um, yeah, I'm going to throw it over to Esther. What What were your takeaways from this one? <laughs> um, I'm laughing because I feel like I need to preface this takeaway with I'm not getting paid to say this. But my biggest takeaway is genuinely that, like, people need to go buy the book and read it because, like, okay, we talked to Crispin for, like, over an hour and we still just, like, barely, barely, barely scratched the surface of, like, all the depth there is to what he's talking about and what he explored in the book. And so... I also love the structure of the book because, like, it gives you these practices, like, spiritual practices at the end of the chapters to walk through and actually, like, discern your attachment style and, like, learn how to heal it with, like, these practical tools. And, I mean, if you know anything about people who see, we're all about those practical tools. So, I mean, again, I'm not getting a cut from any book sold, but... (laughs) I would actively encourage all of you to get the book, sit with it, and walk through those practices because I 
I think it'll help heal your attachment with God. So that's my takeaway. Go buy the book. Well, Esther, it's like we share a brain. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Just um, no, mine is on the same on the same wavelength, but a little different. But no, the book like is so powerful. And something I was going to touch on was those those practical like Esther. What did you call them? <laughs> I called them spiritual practices. There we go. This like just the practical spiritual practices that there are. That truly, there was one that you'll hear me in the interview be like, uh, Crispin, this changed my life. Like truly, it was something I was working, really wrestling through with God. And there was this practice in the book that was this amazing experience where I feel like I had this like really wild, like aha moment of like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. But truly, all of his work, um, resonated with me so deeply. And I think one of the things that he says and he talks about is just like, um, our attachment styles to God are often like how we are attached to other people. And for some reason that was just really eye opening for me of like my attachment style with like friends and my partner and is often, I can see that correlated to my attachment style to God. And so it was just a really interesting to read through those different attachment styles and find myself. Um, I mean, in most of them, but kind of like how I leaned more heavily towards a couple of the attachment styles. So go buy that book, everyone go through those practical spiritual practices. (laughs) Yes. Esther, you are going to be hopefully getting me the book soon so I can actually read it. Um, but from listening, not saying that I don't know of like I've heard of Crispin's work before um, through other other media like different types of media and whatnot, um, but also the more I've learned about attachment theory, um, just in my line of work, um, so it's like I have that part of that body of knowledge, and then Crispin just bringing it together with like spirituality and with our relationship to God. I was like, my mind was blown. Um, Beth, that same idea that the way that we often approach those relationships with other people are the same way we end up approaching and attaching to God. And I'm like, Oh, like I didn't see how I was so much in that, um, that shame attachment pattern where it works so well for me to feel like I'm attached to God by like just agreeing that I'm a terrible human being, you know, and that that's my need for God. And that's how God relates to me. Um, versus like coming to that place of secure attachment, you know, and that we've talked about before that if we come from that place of belovedness, that the truest thing is that we are the beloved of God, then we're secure. And it's like this good, healthy relationship with God. Um, So I'm really, like you said, Esther, where there, you know, even this interview is just scratching the surface. I'm really excited to dig deeper into this work um, in that process of healing places in my relationship with God that um, have been, coming from that place of shame or shut down or anxious anxiety and anxiousness. Um, and so I am just such a fan 
of Crispin uh, and the work that he's been doing and the things that he's been bringing out um, to the, the spiritual community. Um, so I hope you all also um, have found something that really resonated with you um, as you listen to this conversation um, because there's so much there and, you know, we're again, not getting paid, but we would definitely would say um, if you have the opportunity to get a hold of this book, whether that's buying it or getting it, you know, getting your library to purchase it, um, definitely do that because it is worth the investment um, to see, you know, a, a healthier and uh, good relationship with with God. So thank you guys for joining us this time. And we can't wait to have you back for more conversations. Thank you so much for listening. Do you have or know of a story that needs to be heard? Keep the conversation going by following us on Facebook or Instagram and sharing this conversation with someone else who needs to be a part of it. Or if you're like Beth and social media is not your thing, you can visit our website, peoplewhosee.com. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss a conversation. And if you loved an episode, rate, review, and share. Your support ensures that more stories are being heard and more questions are being asked.